Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. I am, and I think the administration is very gratified to know that Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. As the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches, we look at one of the great mysteries of the past year. Who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline connecting Russia to Germany? We'll speak with legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch. He exposed the My Lai massacre and Abu Ghraib. His latest article is headlined, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. Then we go to Michigan, where vigils were held Tuesday night to remember the three Michigan State University students killed in yet another mass shooting. We're all broken by an all-too-familiar feeling. Another place that is supposed to be about community and togetherness, shattered by bullets and bloodshed. We know this is a uniquely American problem. Since the beginning of this year, on average, there have been more than one mass shooting a day in the United States. We'll go to Michigan to speak with an MSU professor and also talk to a gun control activist who lost his sister in the Parkland High School massacre five years ago this week. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A convoy of U.N. aid trucks passed through a newly reopened border crossing into northwestern Syria Tuesday, where some earthquake survivors have been waiting for help for over a week. In Turkey, nine survivors were pulled from the wreckage Tuesday as the death toll from last Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake and aftershocks topped 41,000 across Turkey and Syria. The World Health Organization warned of the risk of waterborne diseases amidst the massive destruction and displacement in both countries. Medical workers also report many patients with mental health concerns, including PTSD. This is Diana Fatal, a UNICEF worker in Syria. Thousands of uh, children uh, faced on the 6th of February uh, a crisis within a crisis where they uh, continue to face complex situation of displacement, of fear and extreme cold weather. Uh, as you see that uh, this uh, collective shelter that uh, used to be a school is now accommodating families that lost uh, uh, houses and loved ones. 
The United Nations says it needs $5.6 billion to help address the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine and to help the millions who fled Ukraine since Russia's invasion began almost a year ago. The U.N. estimates nearly 22 million Ukrainians depend on humanitarian assistance. This comes as NATO says Russia's eastern offensive has begun as Moscow aims to capture the strategic city of Bakhmut. The Ukrainian military ordered aid groups to leave the city earlier this week. Kyiv says, though, it has repelled Russian attacks on Luhansk. Meanwhile, the Pentagon seeking to restore the program to place U.S. special operations forces inside Ukraine. In other news on the war, a State Department-backed report has accused Russia of holding at least 6,000 Ukrainians. Ukrainian children at facilities in occupied Crimea and Russia. State Department spokesperson Ned Price criticized the Russia program on Tuesday. Putin seeks to rob Ukraine of its future by taking its children. Russia's system of forced relocation, re-education and adoption of Ukraine's children is a key element of the Kremlin's systematic efforts to deny and suppress Ukraine's identity, its history and its culture. An Israeli soldier has been jailed for 10 days after he attacked prominent Palestinian activist Is Amro as he was being interviewed by the New Yorker journalist, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Lawrence Wright. The assault took place in Hebron, in the occupied West Bank. Amro spoke after the attack. I see that uh, there is a huge escalation from the Israeli soldiers and the Israeli settlers toward Palestinian and Israeli human rights defenders. We are now really have uh, real uh, life threats. I feel my life is in danger. What happened that the soldier was wild and he didn't care about uh, the presence of a a, a prominent uh, international journalist. They don't care. They don't care anymore even about about the cameras, about uh, journalists. They feel that they are backed up with their own government and backed up by their own uh, system. A Twitter video of the attack posted by Lawrence Wright has gone viral. Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has expressed full support of the Israeli soldier attacking the Palestinian activist. This comes amidst escalating violence against Palestinians, with Israeli soldiers killing another two people, including a teenager, during a raid on the Farah refugee camp in northern occupied West Bank Tuesday. Israel's killed at least 50 Palestinians, including 11 children, since the start of the year. The Biden administration's withdrawn its nomination of prominent human rights attorney James Cavallaro to serve on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights over the attorney's past comments describing Israel as a, quote, apartheid state. He's also criticized House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries' close ties to APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Cavallaro is co-founder and executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. He's previously served on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights from 2014 to 2017. Writing on Twitter, Cavallaro decried what he described as, quote, censorship of human rights advocates who denounce apartheid in Israel, unquote. Indian tax officials raided the BBC's offices in New Delhi and Mumbai for a second day today amidst an ongoing firestorm over a new BBC documentary criticizing Prime Minister Narendra Modi.
Modi has banned the film, which in part covers his time as chief minister of Gujarat, when he was accused of complicity in the deadly 2002 anti-Muslim riots, which killed an estimated 1,000 people. Students have been arrested for showing or attempting to show the film. Independence fighters in the Indonesian region of Papua have taken a pilot from New Zealand hostage after he landed his plane on a remote airstrip. Members of the West Papua National Liberation Army have vowed to hold the pilot, Philip Mertens, until the Indonesian government acknowledges Papuan independence. The Liberation Group released photos of the pilot, along with a brief video statement from one of the group's commanders. We will not release without the freedom of Papua, and we will keep detaining the pilot. So the whole country of Indonesia should open their eyes and acknowledge the freedom of Papua. In New Zealand, Cyclone Gabrielle has killed at least four people and left a trail of destruction as it moved away from the country while rescue and recovery efforts continue. Hundreds of people were rescued from rooftops due to rising waters. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins called Gabrielle the worst storm to hit New Zealand in the past century. New Zealand's climate change minister, James Shaw, delivered a scathing condemnation of governmental inaction on the climate crisis, which is contributing to more frequent and more devastating weather events. I don't think I've ever felt as sad or as angry about the lost decades that we spent bickering and arguing about whether climate change was real or not, whether it was caused by humans or not, whether it was bad or not, whether we should do something about it uh, or not, because it is clearly uh, here now. Uh, and if we do not act, it will get worse. In the UK, activists with the group Just Stop Oil delivered an ultimatum to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, warning the British government must stop any new fossil fuel licenses after April 10th or deal with escalating disruption from the youth activists. The climate group is known for its high-profile acts of nonviolent direct action, disrupting public spaces such as art museums and roads to bring public awareness to the urgency of the climate crisis. This is activist Hannah Hunt. Instead of responding to the wishes of the British people by implementing policies that throw millions into destitution, while enabling fossil fuel companies to make the largest profits in UK history. For the government to win, it will have to defeat the youth of this country, for we will put our bodies on the line. As that action was taking place in the UK, climate activists with Extinction Rebellion blocked private jet terminals at Luton Airport outside London, holding a banner that read, Tax Frequent Flyers. Here in New York, dozens of Extinction Rebellion activists protested in front of Citigroup to demand it stop investing in fossil fuel expansion. Citi is the world's second largest financier of fossil fuels after J.P. Morgan Chase. Brazil's far-right former president Jair Bolsonaro told the Wall Street Journal he plans to return to Brazil in March to lead the opposition and face accusations he incited last month's attack by rabid supporters on government buildings in Brasilia. Bolsonaro, who never conceded defeat to President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in last October's election, has been in Florida since December. 
U.S. authorities have arrested four more suspects in connection with the 2021 assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. The four men were arrested in Florida, and three were charged by the Justice Department with conspiracy to kidnap or kill outside the United States. One suspect was charged with smuggling ballistic vests. Three of the men are U.S. citizens, and the fourth a permanent resident, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. This is U.S. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson. According to the complaint, three of the defendants arrested today operated businesses here in South Florida and hoped to reap windfall benefits from security and construction contracts to be granted by those who they believed would assume power in Haiti following President Moise's demise. The Biden administration said Tuesday it has not uncovered any evidence. Three unidentified flying objects shot down over the weekend over North American territory are connected to a Chinese or other any other nation's surveillance program. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the objects could turn out to be related to commercial or research efforts. Bloomberg reports the Raytheon produced missiles used by the U.S. to shoot down the objects come at a cost of around $440,000 each. South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem signed into law a bill banning surgical and non-surgical gender-affirming treatment for young people starting July 1st. Medical providers who violate the law could face civil suits or lose their licenses. South Dakota is the sixth state to enact such a law. Tennessee could be next as Republican lawmakers advanced a similar bill Monday. The ACLU and others have vowed to challenge it. The ACLU's Chase Strangio wrote, quote, by shifting from safety to privacy, the rhetoric fueling anti-trans bills places the problem squarely on the body and existence of trans people. It was not something we did, but just who we are and how we look. That was the problem, he said. And California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein announced she will not seek re-election in 2024. The move was widely expected by the 89-year-old Feinstein, who was first elected as U.S. Senator in 1992. She's the oldest sitting member of Congress. She's also the longest-serving woman senator and the first woman to chair the Senate Judiciary Committee. She was also the first woman mayor of San Francisco. Two California Congress members, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, already announced they would run for the open seat, with Nancy Pelosi throwing her support behind Schiff. Congressmember Barbara Lee has reportedly shared with colleagues she will also launch a bid for the Senate seat. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch. He exposed the Milai massacre and Abu Ghraib. He'll talk about his latest article, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. Stay with us.
Alexander Glazunov's Violin Concerto in A Minor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show with the legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh. In 1970, he won the prize for his reporting for the Dispatch News Service on the My Lai Massacre, when the U.S. slaughtered more than 500 Vietnamese women, children and old men on March 16, 1968. His reporting in The New York Times on CIA spying on anti-war activists during the Vietnam War era helped lead to the formation of the Church Committee which led to major reforms of the intelligence community. In 2004, in the pages of The New Yorker magazine, Cy Hirsch exposed the Abu Ghraib prisoner abuse scandal in Iraq. Well, last week, he published another bombshell report, but this time on his new Substack page. The piece was headlined, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. It looks at one of the great mysteries of the past year. Who was behind the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines, which were built to carry natural gas from Russia to Europe? The pipelines were severely damaged last September in a series of underwater explosions in the Baltic Sea. In his new piece, Cy Hirsch cites an unnamed source who says the sabotage was carried out by the U.S. Navy, which planted remotely triggered explosives during NATO exercises last September. Hirsch reports the Biden administration began planning the act of sabotage in December 2021, two months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On February 7th, 2022, President Biden held a joint news conference with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and Biden brought up the future of the Nord Stream pipeline. Invades. Uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again. Then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how will you, how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. I'll promise you we'll be able to do that. Well, Cy Hirsch reports U.S. Navy divers planted remotely triggered explosives on the pipelines in June while NATO was conducting military exercises in the area. He reports the divers were all members of the Navy and not members of America's Special Operations Command, whose covert operations must be reported to Congress. Then, on September 25, 2022, a Norwegian surveillance plane dropped a sonar buoy, which triggered the C-4 explosives that had been placed on the pipeline. Soon after the explosion, the United States strongly suggested Russia was behind blowing up its own pipeline. This is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan responding to a question at a White House press briefing. In his speech this morning, the president called the Nord Stream pipeline attacks, uh, quote, a deliberate act 
of sabotage, and he said, now the Russians are pumping out misinformation and lies about it. Should we take that to mean that the U.S. now believes that Russia was likely responsible for this act of sabotage? Well, first, Russia has done what it frequently does when it is responsible for something, which is make accusations that it was really someone else who did it. We've seen this repeatedly over time. But the president was also clear today that there is more work to do on the investigation before the United States government is prepared to make an attribution in this case. In the following months, there have been few public disclosures about the pipeline explosion. In December, The New York Times reported Russia had begun expensive repairs on the pipelines, a move which has raised questions about Western claims that Russia had bombed its own pipelines. Meanwhile, some Biden officials have publicly praised the fact that the pipeline was blown up. This is Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Nuland speaking during a recent Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. I am, and I think the administration is very gratified to know that Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. We're joined now by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch to talk more about his new piece, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. While the White House has described Hirsch's reporting as, quote, complete fiction, calls are growing for an independent probe into the explosion. Cy Hirsch, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can flesh out um, what it is you found in your report um, and what first tipped you off, um, albeit there were a lot of public comments, including the Polish government right after the bombing, saying, thank you, America. Lay it out for us, Cy. Well, first of all, I think the reporting really can be described as a friend of mine did. What I did was really deconstruct the obvious. I mean, you have to hear what the president said. But, of course, there were, there were secret plans that I'm writing about. Um, and they include, um, um, uh, there was a committee set up. Jake Sullivan was directly involved. He was the national security advisor, still is. Um, they set up a team to look at options about how to put pressure uh, on the um, uh, on the Russian government to back off. I, I, I'm getting a bounce in my ear, so this is comical. Can you hear me? We hear you perfectly. We don't hear the bounce, I. Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, I hear it, though. Anyway, um, and so um, uh, there was a... I'm just writing about inside baseball stuff. It's the normal things you do. They set up a committee to think of options. Uh, Russia was clearly going to go. Uh, the threat the president had yet to make um, uh, had not been made. And this is December before before um, New Year's Day of, uh, of the year before, 2021. Um, and the question inside the committee, and it included uh, the usual CIA, NSA, uh, Treasury Department, State Department, you name it. And uh, they met in the secret, secret office building in the uh, across the street from the White House City Executive Office, office building. Uh, the option was, do you want us to do something... Um, uh, uh, kinetic or somebody not something not kinetic. In other words, uh, not kinetic would be uh, more sanctions or something kinetic would be, you know, taking out the pipeline as had been thought about. And our answer came pretty quickly. I would guess uh, Victoria Newland's statement that you mentioned came actually before the president's. It came in late um, January of 2000 of last year. And that statement came I, at that time. I think the the committee involved a lot of sophisticated people in, in the intelligence and operation community uh, concluded you could do it, and the White House was told it was possible. I think that led to the comments, which really, of course, made the people on the inside 
uh, go half crazy because it was supposed to be completely covert. But at that place, as I wrote, it was simply described as a classified operation. None of the rules of reporting to Congress involved are involved were involved. And so they began their planning. They went to Norway, which is a great ally of ours. Norway was one of the original signers of the uh, 1949 NATO uh, uh, treaty. Um, I think 19 nations were involved then. And Norway is uh, a great ally. Uh, we have spent, I write about this in some detail in, in the article, hundreds of millions, probably more than closer to, to, to a billion or more, um, upgrading facilities. Norway has a 1,400-mile border along the Atlantic coast uh, that goes from uh, Oslo in, in Europe all the way up north uh, into, it runs into the uh, Russian uh, border in, uh, in, uh, above the Arctic Circle. So we do, we put a lot of facilities up north there. Um, uh, synthetic aperture radar, which costs a fortune to monitor the uh, Russian nuclear sites around and also their new military activities around there up in the other side of the peninsula, in the Kola Peninsula. So it's, it's just, they're just our guys. And they're also great at doing underwater stuff. And so that's what happened. We did a plan with them. We had to clear it with Sweden and Denmark. I'll leave it to them to decide whether that they were accepted the explanation we were doing exercises in the Baltic Sea for the hell of it. Uh, but so far, I haven't seen much from either of them. Um, and, you know, it, it's a tiresome game to me. Uh, and so what happens is when I do my story on Subsec, uh, I wouldn't even think, um, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it after all those wonderful years I had at the New York Times, I wouldn't even think you'd think a story like this to the New York Times. Um, they've decided that the Ukraine war is going to be won by Ukraine and and that's what its readers get. And that's, so be it. Um, uh, that's their call. Uh, so um, I just did my reporting. And, and um, uh, uh, the, the miners came from a very facility in a, in a, in a, in a, a little small town in Florida. Um, and the mining community in the Navy is, is very secret. And, and they just do their business. They don't talk. That was perfect people to get. And they practiced it. And under, as you said, there was a major exercise every summer by the uh, Sixth Fleet, which uh, American Sixth Fleet out of Nea, out of uh, Italy, which controls also has the operational rights in the Baltic Sea. Baltic Sea is a huge, huge place. The pipelines we're talking about, Nord Stream 1, which came alive in 2011, and Nord Stream 2 was actually done. But the Germans that are ready to pump pump has uh, 750 miles. And uh, they go straight from from um, uh, from Russia which is loaded with all kinds of gas. They're, they're in Siberia, they have enormous reserves, directly into Germany. And I can tell you, Nord Stream 1 was a godsend for the German economy and Western Europe. They, they put, produced so much gas at such low prices that the German government was actually able to resell some of the gas the Russians were providing uh, at a profit without Russia objecting. And so the German economy is huge, it's booming. You know, the, the cars we know about, they, Germany has the largest chemical company in the world, BASF, and everybody's right now. It's it's hell to pay. It's gotten very cold there. There's a lot of anger, and anyway, the purpose. By Hirsch, the uh, so, so I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, the the lack of a. Uh, it always seemed to me when the, the claims were that uh, potentially Russia had uh, sabotaged its own pipeline that it was ludicrous to think that uh, that would be so, that they would invest so much money in pipelines and then and then uh, uh, bomb them themselves. Uh, but uh, I'm interested in the lack of press attention uh, since uh, the sabotage occurred and also the lack of congressional attention. I think back to 
uh, the CIA's mining of the Managua harbors back in the early 1980s under the Reagan administration, when the conservative Republican head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Barry Goldwater, objected and raised concerns that this was a covert operation where Congress was not notified. And then, of course, Congress cut off uh, uh, aid to the Contras. As, as a result, there was an international court of justice ruling against the United States. But in this case, this kind of sabotage, the media seems not to be at all interested in finding out what happened here, as you have, or uh, and Congress. There's no one in Congress uh, that's been raising questions. Uh, you listened to the newscast that you, we just <laughs> that we just heard uh, as the show opened. One horrible event after another. I think the world's taken a very bizarre turn. I also, you know, it doesn't matter what I think. There's no question. There's been a polarization of the press uh, since Trump got in. We're now we're now on two sides, you know, right, left, uh, Democrat, Republican, however you describe it. If you watch Fox News, you don't watch MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. And if you read The New York Times, uh, you 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 are not going to get uh, what the right winger, you know, the, the conservatives have been after The New York Times and Washington Post for their quote, quote unquote liberal views. So we've got a polarization going. And at this time, we've got a president, a Democratic president. That has done some good stuff domestically, but I, I can tell you I'm, I'm not understanding the com total commitment to Ukraine. And I'm not understanding what I'm reading because obviously I have access to a lot of people who see things. I've been doing this, uh, Amy, and, and I've been doing this, what, writing about COVID activities for, am I, am I that old? 300 years. Anyway, the bottom line is um, the stories I've been getting about the war, particularly beginning in fall, and that's what gets interesting, have been pretty dire. Uh, the Russians, um, I don't think, I think the end is just a question of time. Right now, it's a question of how many more people Zelensky wants to kill of his own people. It's going to be over. What happened is the plan was to put the bomb, the, uh, the, and I can't answer your philosophical question about why Congress isn't doing anything anymore. Congress has pretty much polarized just as much. And, um, and there's also um, an enormous uh, continuing of uh, hatred of uh, all things Putin in this country, um, which is uh, foreign policy disagreements are one thing, but it's very personal here, and that's not useful. But anyway, the other, the other, you know, he is. I don't think there's any chance that Putin wants to take over Europe. I don't think he wants to take. He wants to have Ukraine tamed, but he's not interested in doing anything more. But I, that's I may be in a minority about that. Anyway, what happens is it was there was an exercise in June, and it was supposed to. Um, the, the bombs were put in there under the cover of, a, of a, a, a NATO exercise. There were a lot of different countries running around um, with divers um, and uh, blowing up things. It was an exercise to go find and chase mines. There never had one, been one before. It actually was whoever in the CIA or the other agencies that thought this up should get a bow because it was pretty ingenious. So in that exercise, the divers went down, did what they were trained to do. They're very good. C4. A couple hundred, whatever the weight is, um, bombs enough to blow up most cities, most buildings in in in, uh, in Washington, and may some in New York. Anyway, um, they did their job, but the president at the last minute uh, hesitated because he was afraid um, blowing it up right after the exercise would put the finger at us, and then he wanted permission to do it any time, and that caused an enormous trouble in the team. The team was, you know. People are sophisticated in the intelligence services. I know we, we have cliches about them. We see the movies about them. Uh, and the bottom line is um, they were this made sense of them. Uh, 
blowing up a pipeline, <laughs> blowing up a pipeline. Owned by, it's actually owned by uh, a division of say, Gazprom owns 51 percent. That's all the Russian oligarchs. And forty nine percent of the Nord Stream One are owned by four business uh, groups in the Western Europe who, who farm out the oil. Anyway, uh, they saw the threat as being valid. Um, and if he wanted to do it during an exercise, well, okay. But in September, late September, they got the word, you know, they, they fixed it so he could. But then they thought it was, I don't know what they thought, but I don't think they thought in late September he would blow up the main pipeline, Nord Stream 2, which is a new one uh, um, that had been uh, just built. And it had been sanctioned. It had gas in it. That's why so much leaks. 750 miles of methane gas were sitting in it. But it had, been, it had been sanctioned by the German government. And so when he did that, Here's what Biden did, and this is what I think the ultimate point of the story, and why so many people, even the intelligence community, are very troubled by it. What he did is he said, I'm in a big war with Ukraine. It's not looking good. Uh, I want to be sure I get German and West, West European support, and I know winter's coming, and if it's going to be bad, I don't want the Germans to say, we got to check out because we're, gonna, we're getting massacred. We'll be massacred with no, no, no cheap fuel. And um, our, our economy will go bonkers. We're going to check out and we're going to open up the gas line, which they could do. So he took away that option. And what that has done, as you know, America has been talking about ever since the first pipeline, Nord Stream 1, came online in 2011. And it was there were years before it was being built. This goes back to the Bush-Cheney um, uh, years. And, and as you know, um, I did a lot of reporting for The New Yorker on, on those people. Uh, that particular gaggle. <laughs> anyway, and um, uh, at that time, they began to talk about the threat, the, the, the threat of, of, of gas, the threat of oil, cheap energy for Europe would always seen as a threat to make Europe be more palatable or more willing to trade with Russia. We always wanted to isolate Russia. This has been a theme of the last decades. Uh, well, well Simon, before- but, but can I ask you also the... Uh- there are several people, obviously, you've gotten criticism at times for many of your exposés, but there are some people who are saying that this particular expose does not have a whole lot of documentation, that it essentially relies on one source uh, of uh, one internal source, anonymous source of yours. How do you respond to those uh, those criticisms that this is uh, much less uh, documented than previous exposés of yours? I'll get to that, but let me finish my thought because it's a very important thought. The fear was uh, Europe would pass away, walk away from the war. And now what he's done, and you have to lift it up a little bit. There you go. There. Now what he's done is he's told Europe, uh, "You're second, you're second rate." And I think the consequences of this for the Europeans are going to be horrific. They really, this has cut into the notion that they could depend totally on America, even in a crisis. And I think it's going to undercut NATO, which I always found to be supremely useless. But certainly the European countries are going to be. uh, I know people that are paying five times as much now for electricity. Uh, People are paying three or four times more for gas. There's not enough of it. It's very expensive. It's colder now than it was in the fall. They had a light fall because of uh, climate change, if you want to believe it or not. And anyway, I think the consequences politically for us are enormous. I think the reason that Biden and his uh, people in the White House have denied the story and continue to deny it 
and get accepted by um, some of the press, my old newspaper, the New York Times. I, I don't know why they're not doing more reporting on this instead of relying on a denial and walking away from the story. Ditto for the Washington Post. Uh, I think the consequences politically for us in the long run, looking at even potential some countries walking out of NATO, if that's what he thinks, that our being cold is less important than him keeping a war going that he's not going to win, um, uh, is it, it strikes me. As for the source question, I you know, I've been doing this so long. Uh, I'm not bothered by the fact that, that uh, the government attacks me and that my old newspaper, the New York Times, hasn't written a word about it. I find it sort of, you know, that's where we are. That's why people like me are in Substack. It's a self-publishing thing. I don't have to worry about censorship or second thoughts. Uh, but I don't talk about sources. I, I just, you know, I'm lucky. I've had for 20 or 30 or 40 years people inside who not only are faithful to what they're doing, but also are not afraid to be critical of it. And so um, uh, that's the kind of source that, uh, you know, reporters, you know, uh, dream about. And I've had people like that uh, for forever, and I still do. And so um, um, there's been a lot of criticism. One of the things is, one of the things I will get to your point about criticism, one of the criticisms of the open source people, you know, OSINT, it's a very big part of the world now, there are people that monitor air traffic and boat traffic and all that. And there are some two or three different groups have um, have uh, produced a uh, statement saying that none of the things they, they see tracks with my story. And I would say about that, if if you're in the in the intelligence community, you've been running COVID ops for years and you're in Norway, we're working very closely with the Norwegians on this, who, by the way, have increased their production of oil to Europe uh, by double the profit. It was I don't know the exact numbers, but it's gone up at least double, maybe even more than two and a half times as much now without the, without the without the pipeline. But certainly, the first thing you look at is how to take care of open source people, make them think what happened isn't happening. I mean, that's that's so obvious to me, but not to them. Um, and so, Sai, um, I wanted go to go to what Ned Price said at the State Department. Sam Husseini of the Institute for Public Accuracy questioned the State Department spokesperson about your reporting last week. I'm sure you're aware of the new report from Seymour Hersh, how America took out the Nord Stream pipeline and the White House's denial of any involvement. Given the longstanding U.S. Okay. opposition to the pipeline, Secretary Blinken's calling its demise a tremendous opportunity and Secretary, Senator Secretary of State Newland's saying that the U.S. officials were pleased with the destruction of the pipeline, especially the Sweden's secretive investigation. Do you think the U.S. government's uh, denial of involvement is credible? I absolutely do, and I repeat it here. Um, so let me follow up on that, if I might. Um, have you or anybody else at the State Department um, any communication with German, Norwegian ambassadors or other allies or officials on this matter? On the matter of Nord Stream 2? On the matter of the latest allegations, um, which give a fairly, I mean, it's it is, anonymous it is, source. It is, it is a fairly It is, it would not be, it would not be typical for us to engage allies and partners on something that is utter and complete nonsense and that should be rejected out of hand uh, by anyone who is looking at it through uh uh, through an objective lens. Yes, go ahead. One, one more aspect on this. One of the allegations that Hirsch makes is that it was taken off the CIA in order to prevent involvement, uh, oversight uh, as a covert operation. Did you read the piece? I'm familiar with it. 
one of his allegations is that it was taken off the but, r- rather than let this this propaganda get, no, no, be, be aired in, in the briefing room legal, but let, 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 let me just say it is a fundamental misunderstanding of oversight in our US Congress beyond getting his facts entirely wrong as he has before in very uh, high-profile ways. Uh, it is a fundamental misunderstanding to suggest that our intelligence community is not subject to oversight. Anyone who writes that, anything who writes anything like that, no, no, uh, should, no, should not be believed not by wrote. any no, no, no. that he, he wrote that forward. it was taken off of uh, a CIA and put under military in order to prevent... Our military is also subject to rigorous oversight. That, that, that's my uh, question. That's yes. my question. The answer is yes. So that's Ned Price being questioned by Sam Husseini in the State Department press briefing room. Um, Cy Hirsch, I'm wondering if you can respond. You wrote an interesting follow-up today on Substack uh, called Crap on the Wall. Now, it's not your words, actually. Uh, you're actually quoting um, the White House uh, when they—the uh, most too bizarre effort came from Defense Department of Donald Rumsfeld, you write, two decades ago, Secretary Vice President Richard Cheney discarded the rule of law and common decency in their efforts to stomp out Muslim terrorism. I was writing for The New Yorker. You're talking about the Abu Ghraib scandal. The White House responded to an article I published about the CIA's secret operations, oh, no, no, inside Iran, by calling it another example of Hirsch throwing crap. That was the word used by an assistant secretary of defense on a wall to see what sticks. Uh, under Barack Obama, you say a senior national security advisor responded, Seymour Hirsch is a known fabricator, adding the magazine, The New Yorker, could publish that response to any future Hirsch story without further checking. Your response to all of this? Well, uh, well, my long-gone mother, who came here as an immigrant and loved America more than anybody, particularly about Ned Price's stuff, she would would have said he should have washed out his mouth with soap, which is what she actually did to me a few times. So anyway, what, what can I say? It's, you know, uh, sometimes, um, uh, I won't say truth, that's too, uh, sometimes different versions of a story um, uh, cause problems. This, the, the reason I went into that sort of soliloquy about what's going to happen possibly in NATO and Europe about Biden's act of saying to the Western Europe and Germany, we rather, we ra- we rather keep our war going, I think, and you can stay cold, is I think it could cause some countries to say, we may be out of here. You know, what, what do we need NATO for and American support when in a crisis they take away our, our ability to keep our people warm? It also could lead. I think the Green Party has done very well in Germany. It's it, the chancellors from the Green Party. I think it's going to lead to widespread conservative movement politically. And the one thing we did after World War Two that was fantastic was we re- rebuilt Europe into a, a modern democratic plurality society, plural society, I think it could lead to um, not, it won't go as far as it did in Italy, we could lead to some conservative victories and uh, subsequent legislations. Because Europe's always had no natural resources, they've always had to rely on others. And um, the others included us, and also Russian gas. And if we want to stop that off, we do it at a political cost. And I think the point I'm making is I'm still going to do more reporting on this, um, because I, there's still things I, I, I need to write about later. Um, I think that this has probably been, in the view of some of the people who did it, one of the dumbest things that American government has done in, in years, and we've had four years of Trump, you know. In the long run, I just don't understand 
why more newspapers, good newspapers like the Times, just still, you know, I still, I still read the New York Times. I, I don't believe everything they say about Ukraine, but it's still they've got wonderful reporters there. My attitude towards editors is, if we got rid of ninety percent of the editors in the world, we'd be much better off. But that's always been since I was a kid reporter. I thought that. So you know, um, I don't care what they say. I mean, if I did, I would, I would weep because some of the stuff is so dumb. It's just so dumb. And and um, the Biden administration um, um, uh, putting uh, Ned Price, he's paid to work. I don't fault him. He, he, he actually knows intelligence. He had a career in intelligence. And he, from all I know, he's a perfectly decent. I know people that know him personally. And he's a fine guy. He's just being told what to say. And he said, and, and let me just say this. You got to go back to the state, Tony Blinken, after the bombing. In, in September, he made a speech in which he it was a press conference in which he made a gratuitous statement. He said, one good thing is that no more will, will Russia be able to weaponize gas. And the notion of Russia weaponizing gas with Western Europe to get fame and to diminish our power over or our authority or our, our economic ability of uh, control over Western Europe has been a theme of this country for, tw- for two decades. It's not a new theme. Oil, oil scares the hell. Russian oil and gas always scared the hell out of oil, out of Washington. Uh, now your question is still. Yeah, and side. Uh, lastly, the uh, the Norwegian government has uh, has claimed that one of the ships that you mentioned in your article that was uh, 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 involved in the planning of this or preparation of this was uh, 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 was not uh, present uh, at the time of these uh, exercises. What do you make of Norway's uh, denial? You know, let me tell you something about Nicaragua you don't know. One of the things that happened in Nicaragua, the CIA guys operating there would thrill and get excited. Uh, there are speeches there. And, you know, even even in the worst of times of the Southern Eastern movement, they would go in their little motorboats off the beaches and shoot flechettes into the beaches and have a contest to see, you know, I, I shouldn't say the latter. They would just shoot and know there were casualties. They would just do that and have a lot of fun talking about it and bragging about it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you get to do when you have a covert operation. And so um, uh, uh, the Norwegian government is that's just completely it's. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I dropped something here. The government, not only did that ship have a uh, it was in the operation, it also have a uh, compression chamber that had been flown in by the CIA. Now I'm getting the details I don't want to bother with. The CIA flew in a compression chamber that they put on the ship because it, it's just a submarine hunter. And the, the divers at 260 feet, that's where they, that's the level. The regions found the lowest level, the, the, the shallowest part of the Baltic Sea, uh, which is off an island called, that's between Sweden and, and uh, Denmark. And uh, they practiced there. They had to. And, and for the divers, it was 260 feet deep where the, where the uh, landlines were. And the pipelines are steel covered, but they're also covered by concrete shields. So it's a serious job to blow them up. And at 260, without a compression chamber, they'd have to go up every 90 feet. They, they're, they're, they're breathing. Uh, it's amazing to me. They're breathing oxygen, nitrogen and helium. Um, it, that's pretty amazing to me. Uh, and they'd have to go up. Uh, to, now they could just pop up to the surface. So the it was called the Alta. The, the ship was there. I mean, uh, that's just such a stupid lie. But the 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 the, 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 the it's a it's a submarine hunter. 
they didn't have to stay there. They did, they could just go and the guys could jump off. And there was no long recovery. At a certain time, they would come up, and the time was fixed. You don't you don't drop uh, uh, explosives like that and then let them go off in five minutes. You give a lot of time. You have a timer on it so that the the the, pilot, the divers could get up to the top and they come up and they make a pickup. It can be happen much more quickly than you think because there is. It's not in the it's not in the description of the ship, but on that ship there was a decompression chamber. It had been flown in and planted there, uh, and by the CIA. This was actually a brilliant operation, if you want to know it from the point of view of a of a classic operation, uh, because they got away with it. And at that point, um, um, uh, um, the purpose was always. Says, Let me go back to this. The purpose of doing it is to make the threat credible. But then you have the president and the undersecretary of state. Within a, a weeks or two of getting a word that it's credible, we can do it. Start blabbing about it. Of course, that was disillusioning <laughs> to the people involved. But so what? I can't talk about it. You know, you can you can say it's not true. I invented it. But that's just, look, he did it. And he's going to hand up to it. I watch my mail. I watch my Gmail. And I'm seeing every day more and more, more than, more than I want. I'm seeing more messages from around the world, different countries teaming in. Um, I'm seeing that. I'm seeing something that was, um, uh, and by the way, in Substack, it, it was, I, I didn't know about Substack. It's an amazing platform. They had more than a million hits on the thing within a day. Well, I mean, people, what were the messages I got from people said, thank God we missed the kind of reporting that you and others have done. We don't see it anymore. Uh, I'm not talking about your showing. I guarantee you, not that. Well, Seymour Hirsch, we want to thank you so much for being with us. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist will link to your new piece on your substack, How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. Coming up in 30 seconds, we go to Michigan, where vigils were held Tuesday night to remember the three slain Michigan State students killed in yet another mass shooting. Stay with us. Seems like it gets harder sometimes Look at the skylight Would you be mad at me if I tried running away to it in the night I try to fight But I'm not strong enough I just want you here But I also want to be alone I don't Darkness Keeps Chasing Me by Grace Vanderwall. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The Michigan State University community is grieving after Monday night's mass shooting on campus, a gunman killing three students, severely wounding five more. Names the slain MSU students have been released. Arielle Anderson, Alexandria Werner, and Brian Fraser. According to the Gun Violence Archive, this was the 67th mass shooting in the United States this year. On average, more than one mass shooting a day in this country. 
since the beginning of January. This comes as Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Democratic state lawmakers responded to the MSU mass shooting by calling for more gun control laws. President Biden also called for more gun control, calling for an assault weapons ban as he mourned those killed at MSU and marked the fifth anniversary of the 2018 Parkland High School massacre in which 17 people were killed on Valentine's Day. For more, we go to Detroit, where we're joined by Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine professor and director of Pediatric Public Health Initiative. She's a Flint-based pediatrician, also the author of What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. And with us in Washington, D.C., Robert Shentrups. His sister, Carmen, was killed in the Parkland mass shooting five years ago this week. He's a gun violence prevention advocate, co-founder of the Brady Youth Initiative Team Enough. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Dr. Mona, let's begin with you. This is your university. Um, you have your governor, Whitmer, saying this is a uniquely American problem. Talk about the fallout and what you're calling for. Yeah, this is, um, you know, happened in, in, in our backyard. And I think we hear about this every day in the news and we don't expect it to happen where we work, where we live, where we go to school. And it's increasingly happening. Um, 8 p.m., I got a text, a phone call, an email, like so many other Michigan State University faculty and students and staff that said, run, hide, fight. And to get a message like that is is surreal. It's just, this is not how we should be raising our children. This is not how we protect our children. Um, there's so much that we can do. There's so many great gun control legislation that we need to put into place. Um, despite this tragedy, um, there are glimmers of hope. Michigan is now un-gerrymandered. Um, we have the Democrats have control of the state legislature for the first time in 40 years. And I think we will see um, gun control legislation. It is not enough, but it is an important start. Uh, Dr. Mona, could you talk about why gun violence is now such a, a public health crisis, especially, uh, with, especially with children, uh, yeah. and what steps can be taken to prevent this kind of violence? Yeah, so the number one killer of children is guns. The, it exceeds motor vehicle accidents, it exceeds cancer, it exceeds anything I treat in my clinic. The number one killer of children is guns. We have more guns than we have people in this country. Um, and it is impacting in children, our children in so many ways. That any mass shooting um, triggers trauma for our children. I have two little kids and when they have drills, they come home on edge. Um, you know, it, it is a it is a community level trauma, but the, the, we have to treat it like a public health crisis that it is, and we have to put into place the evidence based tools to prevent these crises. We know what we can do. We can limit um, the the use of them, the purchase of them. There's you know background checks and red flag laws, and and there's things that we do every day as clinicians to in terms of injury prevention that can also limit access. But we cannot do this alone. We need we need policies. We need child safety policies. We need, um, you know, assault weapon bans. We need more policy tools to protect children to address this epidemic of gun violence. Once again, the number one killer of children. I want to bring Robert Shentrup into this conversation. Um, his sister Carmen killed in Parkland at the high school five years ago on Valentine's Day, yesterday. You're now with the Brady Youth Initiative team enough. And 
Each time the mass shooting happens, which is so frequent, Robert, I think about what all of you go through, those who've lived through, those who've been injured in the past massacres, uh, like your sister who was killed. If you can respond to what took place this week and what you're doing right now, how the logjam will be broken around gun control. I mean, there are people, for example, who are mentally ill all over the world, and it's not just mentally ill people. We're talking about a whole group of people um, who are angry. They are overwhelmingly uh, almost all men, but they don't have automatic weapons or pistols. Instead of punching someone, they can kill 70 people in one fell swoop. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And as you mentioned, I mean, <clears throat> the events of this week are really just emblematic of the epidemic of gun violence that we just heard about. Um, you know, from my personal experience growing up in Parkland, going to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, um, having my two sisters go there, um, and then having my sister Carmen killed in the Parkland shooting, um, my story is an all too familiar American tragedy. And we've seen in the five years since Parkland, um, which we commemorated last evening here in the district, uh, we really wanted to highlight, you know, the types of gun violence that happen every single day. Um, over 110 people are shot uh, and killed every day here in America. And that number is only going up in recent memory. And so, you know, the incidents like Parkland, like the tragedy that happened at Michigan State a couple of days ago, like the tragedy that happened at Northern Illinois University over 15 years ago on February 14th. Um, these are things that continue to happen, and young people bear the brunt of this issue. Uh, as we just heard from the doctor earlier, this young people, the leading cause of death now for the first time is gun violence. It is the most likely way that we are to die. And this is something that is an issue that we have done nothing about for decades up until the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act this year at the federal level, and is an issue that just keeps compounding and getting worse for that reason. Um, and I, I really want to highlight the story of a survivor from the Michigan State University shooting who is also a survivor of Sandia. Young people now experience gun violence multiple times throughout our lives. And this is something that is pervasive that we cannot, it feels like we cannot escape. And yet it's also something that is so common. It, these stories are only going to continue to happen unless we do something. Um, and so to the point of your question about how do we break this log jam, I mean, we just saw this summer for the first time in nearly 30 years, federal legislation passed to reduce gun violence. And that's really important. I mean, up until pretty much when it happened, uh, a lot of the conversation was, oh, this is horrible. What are we going to do? Um, and the consensus was the change at the federal level was something that should happen but probably wasn't going to. And then we saw within a couple of weeks that change. And the reason that it changed was that there was public pressure, there were people being outspoken, and there was a push to hold politicians accountable because we know this issue of gun violence is preventable. We see other countries, all of our other peer nations, do not have this problem. It is only the U.S. in which we have very easy access to firearms and an oversaturation of them in our communities, where we really see this issue persist. Robert Chentrup, we have five seconds. Do you think the answer is an assault weapons ban? 
We do. And at Brady United, we support a Solvins ban, universal background checks, and a slate of comprehensive solutions, all part of our Brady blueprint to prevent gun violence that you can read at BradyUnited.org. We thank you so much for being with us. Robert Shentrup of Brady Youth Initiative, Team Enough, and Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 